Welcome to the Tabletop Gaming Magazine podcast. I'm the editor, Chris Eggett. Today I'm joined by Ross Gilbert. We're talking about trading card games, living card games, and generally any kind of card game. We get Ross's top five trading card games that aren't Pokemon, his recent obsessions from the hobby, and of course, we talk about the meta. On we go. Welcome to the Tabletop Gaming Podcast. Uh, I'm here today with uh, Ross Gilbert, or Wassy, as he's uh, referred to uh, on on YouTube. Uh, he's probably the voice of uh, card games today. Uh, introduce yourself. Hello, I'm I'm Ross, or as some people know me, Wassy. I don't know about the voice of card games. I like to think so. I started off a few years ago with the aim of being like the voice of the Pokemon trading card game. And then it turned out I liked a lot of other card games as well. So I'm trying to branch out. I don't know how well I'm doing, but not terribly. I think it's pretty good. I, I love your videos personally. Um, so and, and uh, anyone who doesn't know something about um, a card game who watches one of your videos will know everything about it immediately afterwards. So uh, it's incredibly informative stuff. Um, so your, your main line is really um, the Pokemon trading card game. I mean, Pokemon is where it started. It was kind of a, a childhood obsession. I played the video games as a child. And I was around when the base set came out, like way back when, when that first set came out, I was spending far, far too much money. My my aunt, from when we were very, very young, she started a savings account for me and my three siblings. And I don't know exactly what the plan of this was. She was just a really nice lady. And the long, short version is that most of that ended up being set, bent on Pokemon cards, which now I'm in my mid-30s has actually turned into a weirdly good investment because she kind of started my new career path. So, cheers, Annie. Yeah, <laughs> that's excellent. Yeah. I, mean, I, think that's most, I think most people um, have some kind of like trading card game like in their past, especially... Especially as like a kid or something, uh, oh, but yes. most of us sort of um, leave it leave it behind at some point. You know, it's a bit like Warhammer, like that. I think a lot of people used to play Warhammer um, and then uh, come back to it later in life. Um, I did used to play Warhammer. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and so, um, yeah. I mean, I wondered if you could just sort of give us a uh, an overview of um, of uh, what what's what's big and what's good in in card games right now. What's big and what's good in card games right now? I mean, as it stands at the moment, people are... I mean, something you mentioned before the call started, people are getting big. Now, I'm I'm not a magic dude. I want to be a magic dude. But my problem is, like you mentioned earlier, I, I want to know everything about a card game. And I want my videos to be very much an exhaustive thing. And I'm, I didn't get in on magic at the beginning. With Pokemon, I ducked out for a few years there in the middle. But I've always been in on Pokemon, so I've got that historical knowledge. Magic, I really don't. So I'm not so in. It, one day I will sit down and learn everything. But I've got many, many friends that are. And apparently there's lots of big monsters in Magic at the moment, including actual Godzilla. And I would love to know how the licensing for that fell, that Magic got actual Godzilla in the card game. I mean, there's power creep over time. I mean, one thing I find very, very interesting, so we've got Keyforge, which is another obsession of mine, that was designed by, now, is it Richard Garfield? That's it. Yeah. I have a habit of saying Andrew Garfield and that's Spider-Man and they are not the same person. No, very similar. Designed... They both were bitten as children though <laughs> uh, by, uh, by spiders, but the powers became very different, that's all. Both uh, very talented men. Yes. And he designed Keyforge and they are also bringing in giant creatures in the new set Mass Mutation, 
which should be coming out now, but has been pushed back because everything's pushed back at the moment. Which of these kind of double cards that you put together and have to play, which in itself is reminiscent of the legend cards Pokemon did in the Heart Gold Soul Silver era. So you're talking kind of 2011, they were bringing them in, and now they're coming around a decade later in Keyforge. But you do see this creep over time. I mean, I've, I've got this lovely series I like doing, which is I'm trying to chronicle the complete history of the Pokemon trading card game. And it started off kind of in the base set. You had Chansey, 120 HP, gigantic. I mean, for the time, ridiculous HP. And I think they've now got two Pokemon that are sharing the record. You've got Snorlax VMAX and Copperaja VMAX were 340. So they've almost gone and trebled. It is, they are getting very, very big in that regard. But it seems to be in the last couple of years since I've wanted, and I don't know whether it's just because I'm paying more attention, because I have been actively trying to pick up new card games since about kind of summer 2018. I've really been on the lookout for new card games. And in that time, I mean, I've been getting in on Transformers, Dragon Ball, Keyforge. And then I know Argent Saga is not one that I've, picked up personally but i've got a lot of friends who've been kind of getting big into that and it does seem like trading card games are getting trendy again and there are more and more kind of being released on a regular basis it's almost kind of like a resurgence whereas i don't know it seemed like if you go back three or four years they weren't launching but i think they're doing a better job another thing that i've been kind of obsessed with lately is there was an old top deck magazine done by wizards of the coast did you ever check this one out? No, I don't know. Tell me about it. Go on. It, it was literally, it was a Wizards, of, it was a proper magazine sold in newsagent, professionally produced by Wizards of the Coast. And I bought it as a child. And like so many things when I grow up, I don't know this for a fact, but my mum must have been them all, which is really upsetting because now I'm trawling eBay trying to find them. And they're not that easy to find. <laughs> and it's just, it's literally just a Wizards of the Coast magazine. It's kind of like one third Pokemon, one third magic, and one third other. And it's, you're talking kind of turn of the millennium. And they're just launching these card games so fast. You've got an X-Men trading card game, which is basically based around the Brian Singer movie. There's a Looney Tunes card game, a WCW wrestling card game. They've got Harry Potter, Major League Baseball. They've got the NBA, the NFL. And none of them, la well, no, Harry Potter did. But outside of Harry Potter, none of them lasted more than one or two expansions. And it's like they were just throwing these things at the wall and seeing what stuck. Simpsons got one, G.I. Joe got one, and none of them lasted. I think we're in a better place nowadays. So, like, Transformers seems like the kind of thing that 20 years ago, Wizards would have launched and been like, you've had two sets, leave us alone now. And it's been delayed, shockingly. But they're just about to launch their fifth full expansion. Wow. And it seems to be doing... It, it's kind of it's settling in nicely on the lower end of the top card games. You're talking kind of a fringe top ten game, which is good. You know that that will keep the game alive for years to come. And that, that sort of community stuff, I guess, is the answer to how these things stay alive. The, I will say the Transformers, the dudes who run Transformers over at Wizards, they are brilliant. It's like there's this new young. I don't want to say how young they are. I don't know if they are young, but they seem like a young, hungry team who have gone right. Let's launch this new card game and let's really go for it. And they're doing so many community spoilers. Hmm. Like anyone who is remotely kind of into content creation and putting the effort in, Wizards will chuck them a spoiler to go and show for basically every set. They're sending out product to all the content creators to open. 
They're, I mean, they're even going into Facebook groups like the UK Transformers Facebook group has their own spoiler that wizards will go and drop just in that Facebook group and go, hey, here's your spoiler, go share. And then someone will go share it in the other like worldwide Facebook groups. And they're just really going for it, which is wonderful. What we would like about card games like these are, are the fact that they're living, right? You know, oh, absolutely. That, that, you, you know, it's, um, I, I was speaking to, to um, uh, Agents of Sigma about, um, but we talked about the idea that it's really nice to have something that's releasing all the time because it's a game that um, gets to live in your head when you're not playing it. Uh, Absolutely, and, that, and that's and that's like a really nice thing to have with a, a, a game because it really sort of connects your life with it in some way. And I, I, wonder, I wondered if you could speak on that for a, a few of your your favourites. Oh, it, it's it's legitimately it's like a constant obsession. I mean, I I thank goodness we've got smartphones nowadays because I genuinely used to carry around when I first got into Pokemon. I would always have a little notepad and a pen in my bag. So when I came up with deck ideas, I would literally just sit there and start jotting down ideas. I mean, I have been up to now very much a teacher and I'm trying, I'm trying to do the transition from teaching into content creation and I'm kind of halfway there. So fingers crossed that keeps going. But there's been so many times that, you know, in a lesson, I'll just sneak over to my desk and I, I won't spend long doing it, but just kind of <laughs> spend a couple of seconds just jotting down because I've just had this idea and then break time will come and I'm on the internet and I'm just fleshing out the deck list. But I mean, it's, it's literally the case. Like when people wake up in the morning nowadays, they check their phone. That is the thing we all do. And most people are like, oh, what are my friends up to? I'll check my phone. I'll be like, what happened? Because especially with Pokemon, news from Japan comes out our time, like two in the morning. So I'm just constantly, you know, checking the news, thinking up deck ideas, trolling Facebook. I mean, my Facebook wall is pretty much entirely just trading card games. Yeah. I speak to my family and friends through other methods, but it's just a place where I collect all of these games together. And it's, it's legitimate, like daily excitement, seeing new cards drop, seeing decks do well in tournaments that nobody saw was coming. Trying to, I mean, Pokemon just this past week announced their rotation for next year. So as of August the 28th, they're cutting four main sets, a mini set and a few promos that aren't going to be legal for tournament play going forward. So it's then that kind of, OK, well, what decks survive? But what do we mean when we say survive? Which ones are fine? Which ones are playable but lose a bunch of tricks? Which ones are completely gone? And then you've got other things like, well, this wasn't good previously, but how is the metagame going to change? And what decks are going to be good, not because they've got new tricks, but because of the decks that were keeping them down have suddenly gone away, and now the kind of path has been cleared, so to speak. So what is it, what is the... Because uh, I, I love talking about meta. Any game you like, I, I want to hear about the meta. <laughs> just because I, I think it's it's the, mo it's like the most interesting part of anything that's competitive, is um, what's happening in people's heads bet between games and like... Uh, and, and over the table itself. Um, so what, what is the current Pokemon meta? Is it you know, a rush meta? I don't know. It, it's big tag teams. We basically, a uh, couple of years ago, they introduced big tag team Pokemon. It's two Pokemon on one card. They give up three prizes when knocked out. You need to take six prizes to win the game. So KOing one of them is half the game right there. Mm. But they are exceptionally powerful. And it really is. You've got this small group of tag team Pokemon that are just absolutely dominating the format and it, it's kind of what there is at the moment i mean they they released this card arceus and dialga and palkia it is hands down one of the most broken cards they've ever released in the game and the hook basically is it's got this attack 
that says for the rest of the game, every time you take a KO, you take one extra prize. So it turns your opponent's single prize Pokemon into a double prize Pokemon or a two into a three or a three into a four. So now all of a sudden, whereas you used to go, right, my opponent's playing a free prize and a two prize Pokemon. I can play a single prize deck and I can trade favorably with them. That doesn't work anymore because they're taking two prizes. So you've got this little Pokemon and the general rule is I'm smaller and I'm weaker, but I only give up one prize. So it works out. But now you don't only give up one prize. You're just smaller and weaker. And the community as a whole is trying to basically find ways around this card, which is doable, but it's exceptionally difficult to actually do. And it really is. You've got, there's a kind of contingent of control decks, people just trying to run you out of options and completely ruin your day. And they are strong right now. People are having a lot of success with them. But the majority of the meta is basically big, powerful, smashy Pokemon. And when we, and when, when we say control decks, that's um, decks that just try and stop your opponent doing anything. That's it. Really. Yeah. So instead of you doing stuff, you're trying to stop your opponent doing stuff. They draw energy, you get rid of their energy. They want to evolve, you stop them evolving. You try and get rid of the cards in their hand or give them a lower hand size so they've got fewer options moving forward. And essentially, they end up running out of cards in their deck. And one of the win conditions in Pokemon is if your opponent is unable to draw a card to begin their turn, they lose. And your goal is to stop them taking six prizes before they run out of cards in their deck. Do, do, do you get um, uh, one-turn kills? It, it is possible. We do get them. It is less... There have been in the past... I mean, if you go back to... I think it was about 2012. They inadvertently... They brought in these new rules. They hadn't had a rotation for a, a couple of years. They actually skipped a rotation. And then when the Black and White era launched, which is a new block of cards with, to tie in with the new video games, they brought in these new rules and they inadvertently broke the game so that you could actually have a deck that would go first and fairly reliably win before your opponent had ever drawn a card, <laughs> which wasn't fun. So UK Nationals back then, they basically said, I know black and white's out, but ignore it. No cards, no new rules, just pretend it didn't happen. And then they did a very unusual emergency mid-season rotation before US Nationals because they went, you know what, this isn't fun. And it wasn't fun for anybody, incidentally. Those decks were not fun to play against. It kind of turned the game into solitaire. But one of the things I quite like about Pokemon have gotten good in the last few years of going, OK, the game's actually ended up broken, so let's fix it. And so, you know, they, they did fix it. And it, it does happen. Donk decks, I must confess, I around about that time, I had quite a bit of success with a deck that got its fair share of donks. So I do. Yeah, I, I feel a little bit guilty about that. But the format, I mean, they've, they've kind of slowed it down now. So if you go first, you're not allowed to attack. And also, if you go first, you're not allowed to play a supporter card. So basically, you've got trainer cards, which do extra stuff. Supporter cards are the best ones of them, but you can only play one during your turn. So by limiting that and attacking, it does occasionally create the opposite problem, that person goes first, can't do anything, person goes second and smashes them. But it happens less often than I was expecting it to. So, I mean, in terms of turn one KOs, I think we're in a pretty good place right now. But... These tag team Pokemon, they're creating problems, shall we say. For me personally, just because <laughs> I want to play something weird and under the radar, 
and it's more difficult to do now than it has been in years past. I like, I, I do like Keyforge, and I like how they um it, they built into Keyforge um the chains. Yes. Um, so that when you're when you're doing competitive play, um your hand size reduces the more successful your deck is. Yes. So as if you play in competitive matches and, and chain bound matches, um you end you end up in a position where um you're you're slowly your hands being kind of or your your deck's kind of slowly being choked of its its potential by reducing your hand size hand size over time. Um, I think that's really, a really clever like approach to the meta. Obviously, they can do that because they you know the whole game is run on uh, a, a huge weird um, a logarithm of predefined decks in some way. Um, but uh, yeah, I just, I just I really like really like that approach. But um, in more traditional games you, uh, such as Pokemon, you do have that, that thing of the publisher um, breaking the game, fixing the game, breaking the game. I, I, I like that too. I mean, I like the idea that maybe they intentionally break it. Does that does that seem like something, do you ever think they just think, oh, we'll just do this because it'll be fun? I, weirdly enough, there was a really, really good article that came out a little while ago where um, it was, I want to say GameSpot, some website, some video game website, they they went and did a, this big article about how Pokemon cards get made. And there's basically like 13 dudes over in, I want to say 13, something like that. But there's 13 dudes over in Japan, and they are the testing group for the Pokemon cards. And it's just those dudes, and they do all of the testing. Wow. And I honestly, <laughs> and I mean, imagine getting, you know, you and a dozen mates, and you are expected to find every loophole in this new set of 100 cards but in Japan, you get kind of, at the moment, every three months, you'll get one set of about 100 cards, one set of about 70 cards, and a bunch of extra little promos. And you're expecting this group of 13 dudes to suddenly find all the problems. I think sometimes they just don't see it coming. There was a deck a little while ago. It was a deck called Night March. And it basically, you, you got a bunch of specific Pokemon. You whacked them in your discard pile, your graveyard, your trash, call it what you will. And then you did big damage. And it was a really good deck, but they printed this other card that forced you and your opponent to shuffle your discard pile into your deck. And this completely nerfed Night March. It turned Night March from a really, really powerful deck into a, well, it's good, but your opponent can play this literally called Trump card. They can play this <laughs> Trump card to ruin it. What they didn't realize was a bunch of people would go, wait, so I can use Trump card, play this ridiculously fast deck with a whole bunch of coin flip cards, and coin flip cards are inherently better because you've got to flip heads to make them work. But I can basically run through my entire deck every turn, so I'm playing this one coin flip card three times every turn, and then use this trump card to just refresh my deck, and it completely broke the game. As in, UK, they didn't actually fix that before UK Nationals, and that was a one year Day one, I commentated UK Nationals by myself for nine rounds, and there was one viable deck. And every other deck <laughs> would just come against... I mean, the final was just a mirror match, obviously. And it was literally just one deck was good. Yeah, and, and I think the problem was that the, the designers were thinking, right, this will stop Night March. And the testers were going, yep, this stops Night March. That works nicely. They didn't think, what if we use this deck instead to make a ridiculous speed deck Re, you know, just abusing all these coin flip cards, and then they, well, they, they they very very rarely ban a card in standard, but that was one of the very few instances they did just outright ban it because it it just ruined the game. Annoyingly, they banned it before U.S. Nationals, but after U.K. Nationals. 
So we had to deal with it. So uh, you just brought up the commentary there. We should talk about that, shouldn't we? Um, how how does how does one commentate on a uh, on a card game? It's it's kind of a weird thing, and my friends and family are always very very confused because I've I've been lucky enough to be able to do commentary at official Pokemon events and even for an official Keyforge event as well, as well as doing a lot of grassroots stuff at home. And it's very I mean I I kind of explain it to people like look it's just like sports but it's quite a lot slower with quite a bit more prediction. So, I mean, it is basically at its core. You're just saying what cards are being played, saying why they're being played, and then explaining kind of what they're likely to do or what their likely strategy is going to be in the future. But what's really good, if you get to big events, I mean, one of my favorite ones I did, I ended up in Australia, and there was a dude called Tord Reklev, Norwegian Pokemon player, phenomenal player, and he literally won the previous two international championships and you're talking like thousand people tournaments just ridiculously big tournaments and all the best players will travel and he'd managed to win two in a row and we were like yeah but can he actually win and he did go and win the third one in a row there which was ridiculous but it was kind of following those stories through and pokemon have had this brilliant habit lately where they end up having these big tournaments the first weekend a new set is legal for tournament play (laughs) So you've got all of that, you know, you've got that brilliant prediction of the players trying to figure out what decks are still good, what new decks are going to come out, how old decks are going to change with the new set, and just this brilliant kind of unknown going into it. And that creates this brilliant story going through the tournament. And that's kind of where the downtime in matches and the between rounds talk comes from. I think, I I genuinely think if if you're into card games, then the commentary for that is going to be as interesting and exciting as if you're into sports. And I'm aware that sports people who don't play card games will find that previous statement utterly ridiculous. I mean, I really enjoy the commentary. I, I, that's actually how I, um, I came across you in, in the first instance was the Keyforge event, watching you sort of explain these incredibly complex decks mid, um, like mid-play and uh, suddenly understood how the game worked perfectly. Would you like to maybe sort of tell us about the pleasures of deck building? I mean, the thing about deck building is it, it's never done. Every so often, I find someone who who hands me a deck and goes, this deck is perfect. This is, I am never going to change a card in this deck. And I guarantee if they take that deck to a tournament and do not win the tournament, they will want to change at least two or three cards at the end of the tournament. Because you never quite know what you're going to find. And, I mean, for argument's sake, there was one year I actually made it out to the World Championships for Pokemon. And I kept planning to, and then my car would break, and I'd get other expenses. But there was one year, I I bought a car, and the head gasket went. So I bought another car, and three months later, the head gasket went. So I threw a strop, bought a bike, (laughs) cycled to work for a year, and used the money I saved not driving to fly to Hawaii to go to Pokemon Worlds. Wow. Which, I I mean, totally paid off, quite frankly. And (laughs) I went through this this last chance qualifier. It was uh, about 500-person, single elimination tournament, Final eight people standing get to play in the real event and the other kind of 500 people have to go away. And I basically made this deck and it countered the two best decks in the format. And that was basically what it did. It was a really fast, aggressive deck, but it had the answers for the two best decks. And I managed to get through and I managed to get through into the tournament proper. And I was very pleased with myself and I did terribly in the tournament proper. And one of the reasons was there was a control deck, a lock deck I played against, and I had no answer for it. Mm. But there was another dude 
who did get through the last chance qualifier with me, played the same deck I did, but he played two cards that I didn't play. It was an Eevee and an Espeon. You evolve Eevee into Espeon, and to not overcomplicate things, it basically said, ha, 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 that lock deck doesn't get to do what it wants to do. So whereas I played two of these lock decks in a tournament proper, got stomped by both of them and had a terrible day, this other dude made it into top eight of worlds because he did have an answer to the lock deck. I'd made that decision to go more aggressive and not have the answer. And then I'm kind of left with this, well, if I'd have played that 1-1 one, one Espeon line, might I have gotten in? And the answer is, I don't really know. But all the way up to Worlds, I, um, I was living in, in Loughborough at the time, just outside of Leicester. And we used to go to a Premier Inn on a Saturday morning. And I basically sat down with a bunch of me mates. And I was like, right, I want to beat these two decks. And we just played game after game after game, me playing against these decks. And I, I just got the game down. And I tweaked my deck. And I ended up with this very different list to my deck than most people that were playing the deck I was playing because I realized that actually if I made these changes I'd be feasting on the decks made the way they're supposed to be made but then I basically gave up this lock deck match and that that's deck building to me it's just it's constantly walking around thinking yeah but what if I played this card yeah but what if I cut this and it's just it's wonderful. Again, it's that thing of living it, the game that lives inside your head beyond beyond actually playing it. So should we talk about Keyforge then? Well, I was going to say that that is a natural thing to Keyforge because yeah. Keyforge being a living card game, it's not a living card, what's it called? A unique deck game. Yeah. There's no deck building. You just buy a deck and you play it. For my money, there is no better sealed game than Keyforge. Buy two decks, give one to someone, open the other one and just play a game. So I, I spoke to John Pickavance, who won... Um, uh, I think he won the Unchained the UK no the UK Volts Tour that's what he won the Volt uh, Tour at the UK Games Expo that was the one yeah um, and he so he he won that and um, which is quite quite exciting for him but he um, he said that uh, Keyforge is um, it gives you you don't have deck building it but you have the skill of um, uh, deck reading yes uh, which I like I like that a lot as a concept of the this idea that which is obviously a skill in other games but because you don't know what's in your opponent's deck when you sit down against them, or you might know because of the meta, um, you, you have a guess. Reading the decks like the tea leaves and realising what it's for, and like you, you can, um, his line was that you could get tricked by the meta in, uh, in Keyforge quite easily, because you could think the decks that apply to the meta are only the good ones. So if your deck doesn't feel like it does that, then you might feel like throwing it away. The reality is that uh, actually if you sit there and you work at what a deck's for, then you're, um, uh, you're, you're, you're in a much sort of a, yeah, I'm a lot more fun for a start. <laughs> um, you're in a much better position um, uh, when it comes to actually uh, playing competitively. I, I mean, I, I did. I read that article, by the way. I very much enjoyed that oh, article. <laughs> Except for the bit where Alex Watkins, the, um, the organised play manager for FFG, he, he had a bit in there about, oh, you know, some people don't want commentary. They want just just listen to the table mics. And I was like, <laughs> no, Alex, people want commentary. <laughs> I was wondering whether to bring that up or not. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> uh, that didn't get past me. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, reading decks in Keyboard is fascinating. I mean, some of the videos I really like doing is when when a deck wins a Volk Tour, just literally sitting down and analysing the deck and seeing why it's so good. And most of the time, when you sit down and look at a Volk Tour winning deck, you you can see why it won. And they're sometimes very, very different. You get these hideous rush decks that just let you build up Amber and Forge free keys super fast. 
Other ones are extremely slow, but they just stifle your opponent. Other ones build up this giant battle line of creatures that you just cannot try and take down. There's just it just completely overwhelms you. But but it is interesting. The concept of a meta in Keyforge has always fascinated me because you don't get to build your deck. You're, you're you're choosing your deck. But we do see trends where I mean, in Call of the Archons in the first set, Shadows was king. And the reason Shadows was king was they can steal your opponent's amber, and that means they've got less amber to forge keys, and you've got more amber to forge keys, both of which very good things. So it just created this format where everyone was playing Shadows. And for a long time, we had Untamed back in Call of the Archons. They were the fast house. They, could re they had a few card combos, which could just get so much amber so quickly, and a couple of cards that let you forge a key during your turn rather than just at the beginning. And I mean, I've got mates I don't have them, unfortunately, but I've got friends who do have these decks and they can win a game in 10 minutes flat, even against other really good decks. But then you so people started going more control decks. And even though you couldn't make your deck, we saw the decks being brought to tournaments. There was a real shift in what people were choosing to bring. And it goes back to what you were saying a minute ago of you know one day people are saying oh i don't like this deck it's it's a little bit too slow and then you look at it a week or two later and you're like actually it is slow but it slows down these other decks that people are winning with at the moment and then you've actually got this deck which looks kind of meh and all of a sudden is this phenomenal deck which i find absolutely fascinating i do also find it very funny that pe people say oh it's all about the deck it's not about the player but there's um, it's actually an American dude who was at the Vault Tour in Birmingham, uh, George Cagle. Lovely, lovely dude. He makes day two basically every event he plays in, whether it's sealed or choose your own deck. Archon, as they call it. And the thing that really impressed me, he went and won a Vault Tour with this deck that had kind of a broken combo. There was a card called Library Access. You play it. And then every time you play a card, you draw a card. But there was a combo that let you play that three or four times. And then every time you played a card, you drew five cards. And it basically meant every single turn, you had access to every single card in your deck. So That's we went it. and won a Volk Tour with this broken deck. So Fantasy Flight Games came out and they went, right, that library card, uh, that's a bit too broken. So now you can play it once and then it's removed from the game and you cannot stack it. And it's a one-shot deal. And they actually nerfed a second card as well at the same time. So George took this same deck with probably his two best cards completely nerfed and went and won another Volt Tour, even <laughs> after they nerfed his cards, which is ridiculous. But also goes to show that anyone who's saying, oh, Keyforges just take this best deck and go and win with it, it's, it's not that simple. Can you tell us about the weirdest things uh, in games at the moment? The weird decks or... Anything that's caught your eye that's a little bit strange? Honestly, and I, I don't know whether this is even remotely what you're asking about. But the thing that's really fascinating me at the moment, there's this new Digimon trading card game that's it's out in Japan. It's The starter decks have just come out. As we record, we're 10 days away from the first set proper. It's only coming out in Japan. It's not even been announced for any other territory. And yet it's building up this really big feverish community to the point where it's actually getting difficult to try and pre-order this stuff because a few shops that are actually selling it out of Japan are just selling out instantly. There's, there's this magazine called V-Jump and they've done it once and they're doing it again where they give promo cards out with this magazine. And any shop 
that will sell this magazine to US, Europe, etc. As soon as they put the pre-order up for this magazine, because it's got this Digimon cards in, it just sells out instantly. Even though if the game ever does come out over here, they're Japanese cards, they won't be tournament legal. The Facebook group's up to like three and a half thousand members, which is more than, it's double what Chrono Clash has managed. And Chrono Clash is actually out here. Interestingly <laughs> enough, Digimon is basically just Chrono Clash. And then kind of, they've basically taken Chrono Clash as a basis and then just kind of built on that. Yeah. Could you could you explain uh, Chrono Clash uh, briefly? So Chrono Clash, the best thing about Chrono Clash, my favorite thing about it, it's got this, um, it's got a, it's got this gauge. Uh, Chrono Clash gauge? Is that what it's called? <laughs> Whatever it's called. And it's basically, it starts at zero and it goes to 10 either end. And if it's your turn, you've got free time. And you can play a two cost card and then you've got one time. And then you can play an eight cost card and it goes to your opponent's card and they have seven time to play with. Or you can play a two cost That's card not. and it goes to their turn and they have one time to play with. And basically during your turn, you can do whatever you like until you pass the gauge over to your opponent. But if you play an expensive card when you've got little time or memory in Digimon left, it gives your opponent more resources on their turn. Or you can play a little card and then it goes to their turn, but they can't do very much on their turn at all. Mm -hmm. And it's this wonderful tactical back and forth of, I really want to play this card, but if I play this card, my opponent's going to have six on the gauge on their turn, and that's going to open them up to options I don't want them to have. And it's one of my favorite mechanics I've seen in card games since I've started playing. That, that sounds great. That sounds great. I love, I love it. So, sorry, and you obviously you have a hand of cards there that, um, uh, that you're, you're playing out. Um, so your, your, what is your fear is what your opponent has in their hand. Exactly right. So if you know your opponent's got two or three little cards that they want to play, and you give them one memory on their turn, then they don't have the option. They can play one card, and then it's going to be back over to your turn. But then if you play that way, you're never going to be able to play your really good, really expensive cards. So then you've got to time that really well. And it's just, it's one of the best resource management things I've seen in any card game because it basically, it, it lets you dictate the pace of the game rather than saying, like I've been playing a lot of um, uh, Legends of Rune Terror lately. And I like Legends of Rune Terror, but it's very much your first turn you have one mana, your second turn you have two mana, mm. etc. So as the game goes, it kind of escalates up and you can do more and more things. And I like that. But it means that everyone has their options open as the game goes by. I love the idea that you can either choose to open up your opponent's options or not. And that is absolutely fascinating to me. The, the concept of also you've got a bad hand or you've got a very cheap hand of, of, of very few cards left, say. And if you, you can actually slow your opponent down because you've got a bad hand. Exactly right. I, and give yourself more time to draw out of it. And, and I like Chrono Clash. Um, and I was actually very lucky. Bandai sent me the first couple of Naruto sets, which was very cool. And I played a few games with them. But I, there were a few things with the system I, I didn't get on with so well. There was a questing system that... And now apparently, by the time they got to Evangelion, which is... the They did Naruto, then Godzilla, then Evangelion. Apparently, questing is now viable. But for a couple of sets, questing just wasn't viable. And it was, it was a language-free game. So it was all done with symbols. Which, on the one hand, I like, 
And on the other hand, I found it made a lot of the cards feel very similar because those little tweaks you can do in a trading card game, you can't do if you're limited to the symbols involved. I've never, I've never actually thought of that before, but just the fact that the, la- the language does the programming for us there. So you, you know, when you read a card, just um, very simple changes of language there. Um, like you may, uh, we talk about this in, in board game rules a lot, which is the word uh, may. You, yes. may, you may do this, and it's just and it's one of those things. It can be, it can, it can kill or make a game <laughs> if you Absolutely. use the word "may" in the old rules. <laughs> um, uh, it it can change the uh, the whole way people play the game um, to uh, must, you know, for example. Uh, yeah, but yes, um, yes, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. So yeah, so to take Digimon, they've taken now they've taken the memory gauge and they've taken a few other things, and it's got the usual knock out your opponent's security cards or whatever you call them, and when you whittle them down to zero, you win and all of that. But they've got um now in Pokemon we do what's called mutant evolutions. This is really big in sealed formats, where basically you go, right, you can evolve any basic fire Pokemon into any stage one fire Pokemon. It's really good if you're working in a limited pool of cards, because otherwise trying to get the right evolution line is near impossible. But Digimon's got that built in. So any level two red Digimon can evolve into any level three red Digimon, which can evolve into any level four red Digimon. And you can evolve as often as you like during your turn. There's no limit on that. And every time you evolve, you draw a card, which is sneaky, a hugely good mechanic. Because it means, and you can play, and any card can be played normally or evolving. Cheaper to evolve, more expensive to play straight away. So a big level six card, you might pay 12 to play it down normally, but you'd only pay four to evolve it from a level five. But you'd have to evolve it all the way. But if you evolve, you get to draw a card every time you do it. So then you've got those decisions of, and I've already seen some people going, nope, screw evolution, don't care about evolution. I'm exclusively playing giant cards and just casting them <laughs> normally. Whereas other people are going, no, 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 I like these evolution things. And it's just mechanically, and we've not seen the whole of the first set and we've not had lots of tournaments and any of that, and it might all fall apart. But from a mechanic standpoint, and bearing in mind, right, as a Pokemon dude, I'm not supposed to like Digimon. <laughs> but it's just mechanically wonderful. I mean, to the point that they, they did a tutorial app and they only released it on Android over in Japan. So it's like a couple of weeks ago at some weird random Thursday morning and I'm trying to download a program to open up Android software on my computer and then trying to find the APK file from someone in Japan so I can then play this entirely Japanese card game. <laughs> and I'm not the only one that's done that. And it's... I mean, it's on course within a couple of months. It might have more... It should, in fact, have more members than the Transformers TCG group. And Transformers is a really good game. As we said earlier, it's it's doing really well. And I've not seen a game which has not been confirmed anywhere outside of Japan picking up this kind of steam. And it's it's absolutely fascinating to me. I I like that bit that, yes, you have answered the question, have you? This is the weirdest thing, because as you say, you're not the only one doing that. (laughs) (laughs) it sounds great as well you know i'm i'm uh, i'm on board already i mean but how how do i get a pack i know i can't get them um (laughs) quite difficult at this stage unfortunately yeah Yeah, but i'm always i'm always attracted to novelty so uh it's uh yes you've got me you've got me there um so shall we do a top should we do a top five now i think i i think i asked you to maybe do a top five card games 
it is going to be card games because it, it it was supposed to start off as trading card games, but I'll be honest with you, two of them are blatantly not trading card games, but they're kind of the same and they feed the same audience and the same itch. So I'm totally counting them. The Tabletop Gaming Game Store is open and dispatching orders worldwide. Visit www.tabletopgaming.co.uk to read the reviews and buy the games directly from us. And I think I think uh, the one rule we've got is it's not Pokemon. Yes, not Pokemon. <laughs> yeah. going, and also not Yu-Gi-Oh! or Magic. Because yeah. Yu-Gi-Oh! again... I. I want to play Yu-Gi-Oh, but it's got that same. And there's a rash a really nice article you did a few months ago. It was some dude and his journey where he qualified for Europeans. And that article that really made me want to play Yu-Gi-Oh. It really fascinated me. But you've got kind of 20 years of history. And I, I love getting in, you know, like Transformers and Keyforge and Digimon. It's I'm getting in on the ground floor so I can build my knowledge on that nice and slowly and be kind of the expert I want to be to cover these games. Whereas Yu-Gi-Oh! and Magic, they're like properly intimidating to me because I would need to basically dedicate myself to those games for a couple of months to to really build my knowledge up. And I, I don't have that time right now. <laughs> so th- those three games are off because Pokemon, it's not fair to put it on the list. It would be number one. And the other two there, I don't have the knowledge to accurately judge them i suppose yeah yeah and also we know about them so do you, want, do you want to take it away with your with your top five right so number five final fantasy training card game a game that i do not play as much as i should and i need to give a shout out to tim shielder here he runs organized play for square enix he also he hooked me up really nice who have kind of like oh you should you should play this game here's some some starter decks and stuff and and, and go have a go it's a really really fun game it's also weirdly notable for having the best quality cards of any game oh right okay go on tell tell me about that they're just like twice as fat as other card games (laughs) and it means that like when people get these cards graded they always come out with higher grades because they've actually produced them in a really high quality to begin with so that's big thing i mean so i can just explain grading uh, for, for the listeners at home. Absolutely. So grading is basically where you've got a card and you're like, oh, this is a really good shiny card. I would like it to keep its value. So you send it away to a company like PSA or Beckett, and there are a couple of smaller ones, and they'll they'll put a grade on it. They'll look at it. They'll judge what good quality it is, put it in a big plastic case, put a stamp on it and go, right, this is a 10 if it's perfect, 9 if it's a bit lower, etc. And then for the collecting community, if you really want a particular card, you want a grade 10 of that card because that is basically, hey, I've got a perfect condition. And obviously grading the card will increase its value substantially because once they're graded, they don't really go down in value. They don't really get wrecked. They're just they're there and they're you know there forever. And it's it, for the collecting community. It's a pretty big thing. It's worth highlighting just just because it's uh, it's very easy to forget. And there's a really important thing in these games, these analog games, which is that, um, like, it's about physical objects that will degrade over time. That uh, you know, you will break your cards, you will lose your pieces in your games, you will snap the head off, you know, your miniature soldiers or whatever it is. Uh, and it's just uh, an important aspect to uh, uh, 
the collecting the collecting side is quite an important aspect to uh, highlight. So sorry, sorry for the diversion there. No, not at all. So Final Fantasy, you've got kind of you've got your backup, you've got your backups and your forwards, and your backups basically sit there and they produce your resources. Or you can generate resources by discarding cards from your hand, which I really love that duality of I can either set up my backups or I can discard from my hand. It also has that kind of you never quite know what your opponent's going to be able to do because you can always see how many backups they've got. But then you can go, well, actually, if they start discarding cards from their hand as well, all of a sudden they're playing things which I was not ready for them to play. I'm also a sucker. One of the problems with Final Fantasy is every time I play that game too much, I then have to go and play a Final Fantasy video game. And those things are not sure. It kind of wrecks your time for a few weeks. <laughs> the issue I've had with Final Fantasy has purely been a lack of community. And the fact that I kind of I started getting into it kind of Opus 8. I also love the fact they're set to just Opus 1, Opus 2, Opus 3. They've started giving them subtitles now, but... It's just Opus 10, Opus 11. You know what set you're on because it says it right there in the title, which is sneaky underrated because when you're first getting into a TCG, that can be extremely difficult to actually figure out. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Understanding where you are in your 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 journey into it. So that one, that one's been a bit of a kitchen table meta for me. I, I love the game, but I've not I've not been able to invest in it as much as I'd like purely because lack of community. And kind of getting in a little bit late. But it, it, it's also cool because there's so many people out there that love Final Fantasy. And it's got this thing of Square Enix make the video games. Square Enix make the card games. So they can work really well. Like the Final Fantasy VII Remake came out on PS4 there a couple of weeks ago. And there was a Final Fantasy VII Remake themed two-player starter set coming out for the TCG at just the same time. So you've got that synergy there, which is just beautiful. Yeah, it just feels good. Uh, number four, Dragon Ball Super. Now, I was into Dragon Ball since I was a kid. As I'm sure most most people who end up playing tabletop gaming had their Dragon Ball phase at some point. I, I reignited that. I think last year I just rewatched the entirety of Dragon Ball Z, and it, it was wonderful. It still totally holds up. And... It's this brilliant... I mean, the, the, my favourite mechanic from that one, most of the cards in your hand have a, have a kind of a combo number. So you have this option to, when you're attacking, you can just throw down cards from your hand to combo. And that creates that beautiful mind game of, if you over-combo, then you are just dropping cards from your hand you could have used later that you didn't need to drop. But if you under-combo then you've dropped these cards to increase your combo and you've gained no benefit. Your character still lost the battle and you've dropped these cards to combo for nothing. And entire games are won and lost because somebody was able to read exactly what combo they needed to achieve in order to take down their opponent's character while keeping their resources tight. And I, I absolutely love that mechanic along with the whole Dragon Ball thing. This is, I mean, the, the four and five are the two on the list I don't play enough. And the reason with Dragon Ball Super was promos. I love me a good promo card. I think the mistake Dragon Ball made was they made really good promo cards. And as awesome as it is to go to a tournament and pick up a really good promo card, and it is, it would get to the stage where in this season there are eight promo cards. But you kind of need a play set of each. So there's 32 promo cards. 
And when you go to a, a local league meeting, you'll get one random promo card. So you need to go to kind of 32 of these meetings without drawing a fifth of any of them. And I would get to maybe two per season. And they were just, they ended up being too good. And I ended up having to constantly make underpowered decks or go, go all in and really start kind of investing in these promos. It would have to become your life. Yeah. yeah. And it just, with two young children and a Pokemon obsession, it was one of those. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I still pick up Dragon Ball pro products. I still play Dragon Ball. I love the game and I, I adore the property. But Dragon Ball is one of those, I think you had to invest in it quite heavily, at least for the high-level tournament scene. Again, it's, it's another one of those games. If you just pick up a couple of random starter decks and play against it, I mean, it's, it's one I've actually got my wife into playing a little bit. Just and I, I have this habit of just picking up, oh, there's two new starter decks. Let's go get a copy of each of them and kind of pop them in a drawer ready. And we'll just, I've played more games with starter decks than I have with regular decks on that, just because it's nice and easy. But Dragon Ball strikes me as one of those where at some point it could be next week, it could be in a year, it could be in five years. I'm going to kind of crack and go and invest far too much into Dragon Ball Super and get properly into the card game again. Because I'm, I'm still a member of all these Facebook groups. and I'm, I'm keeping up with the news and I'm still watching it. And it's still coming along and it's, it, it's definitely going to come back at some point. That sounds, it sounds great. I like the uh, risk in that as well. Uh, any any game where you any of these card games where you're given like a a real risk of giving your opponent too much or over over overextending yourself. Yeah, I mean, I've I've, I've lost games because I comboed with one card more than I needed to, and that's literally just. And I love that. I love being what I want from card games. I don't mind winning and losing. I've I've never been hit because I spend most of my time analysing card games and talking about them. For me, the fascination is that it's not necessarily the winning. I'm cool with losing, but I want to lose because I made a mistake or because I made my deck incorrect. Like I said about a Pokemon world, I lost two games because I got greedy and didn't give an answer to this deck. Totally okay with that. I don't like playing card games where you cannot make a consistent deck and you lose because you just didn't draw anything. I'll be punished all day long for playing badly. That's cool. But it's when I feel like the game took it out of my control that I get frustrated. I think I mean I think card games generally give you give you a lot of agency as a player anyway, don't they? Because of the deck building, because of all that sort of stuff. So, Absolutely. So number three, Transformers. I adore Transformers, and I am slightly biased with this one because Wizards have given me a bunch of reveals to do, which is awesome. And Wizards have been very generous with kind of sending stuff out to me, you know, to to, to play the game. I feel like I should mention that because otherwise it feels like I'm being a bit disingenuous. But it's one of those games, like when I start playing card games with my children, and they'd better be into card games, or else we're just not <laughs> going to get on. Yes. Well, they have to move out, won't they? <laughs> Dumbing, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a really... And one thing that put me off initially, right, right when the game came out, and I, I loved the game from the off, this was one of the ones I was in, I was talking about and covering this game before it was released, and I was in on it. And there's Mark Rosewater, I think, does the Driving to Work podcast. And I don't listen to it often, but it was an episode about Transformers. So I listened to it. And him and his guests, and they talked over and over about children's game, children's game, children's game. children. And I'm like, no, it's for adults too. I'm starting to feel like a little bit guilty about loving this game. And it is, it is on the simpler side. And there is one of the things they've got. So all the, you've got your characters, which you play at the beginning of the game. 
and they are there the whole time until they get knocked out. And then you've got your battle cards, and it's a 40-card deck, and all of these cards have coloured icons, pips in the corner. And you've got orange, which adds one to your attack if you're attacking, blue, which adds one to your defence while you're defending, etc. So there is this random element. And when you battle, each player flips two battle cards, and you only look at the pips. Obviously, there are mechanics to flip more battle cards than just the two. And it creates this random element. So you might need to flip two orange icons out of three battle cards that you're flipping in order to go and get the KO. So there is that element of chance. But of course, it's not really chance. It's probability. And I mean, some of the best Transformers players are really good mathematicians. And they literally they will make these really complicated spreadsheets basically going right. How many orange icons do I have to play in order to get a 75% chance of hitting this number of icons on an average number of flips? So it escalates quite nicely. But at its core, you've got your giant robots and you can flip between modes because it's Transformers. There's got to be transforming. And it's just big robots punching each other and flipping cars. And there's a little bit of randomness there, but it can be controlled. And it's a very satisfying game if that makes any sense. It feels like big robots punching each other. And the planes act a bit more, you know, the planes all act in one way and the cars act in a different way. And you don't have to play an all-cars deck, but you get a bonus. There are certain things you can do in an all-cars deck that you can if you play a car, a plane, and a dinosaur, for instance. Sorry, are there Transformer dinosaurs? Yeah, they're Dinobots, and they're my favourites. I love oh, them. Right, right. Far too excited to about the Dinobots. Sorry, sorry, yes. Uh, I'm, I must have been missing part of my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, Dinobots have never been the best deck in Transformers, but that will never stop me trying. <laughs> I mean, Transformers for me is, is great, because I've been in since the beginning, so I've managed to build up quite a nice collection, and I'm in on the game, and I know what's going on. The difficulty with Transformers has been a lack of official tournaments. So I find it very interesting. You see a lot of people talking about the meta. And it's just like, well, you know, last year there were like eight moderately sized tournaments that really range from like 20 to 60 people. Can you actually get a meta from that? But that's exciting to me because I think we haven't, because the organized play has been quite slow for Transformers, It means we haven't really cracked it yet. With Pokemon, we go along to a tournament, and I can tell you most of the time roughly what the metagame's going to look like. With Transformers, I really can't. There are trends, but they tend to pass quite quickly because we have kind of an overcorrection. There will be, you know, this 30-person tournament in Las Vegas, and then next week there'll be a a 20-person tournament in Orlando, and you'll see a real kind of overcorrection at times. But I find this absolutely fascinating. But... I mean, Transformers, it really is just big robots transforming. and it- What's not to like, you know? Uh, I, did, I did worry for a second when you were talking about because you, you mentioned spreadsheets before big robots. So <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I'm not sold on this one just yet. But <laughs> I, I will, there, there are very, very few players that are busting out the spreadsheets. But some, some of the best Transformers players are people who are always in and around the top tables in these big tournaments. I'm afraid they do tend to have the spreadsheets because... With the random chance of flipping those battle icons, it does turn into a probability question. It's, it's, it's always going to have a bit of that, isn't it? Number two is one of my cheating ones. I'm going Marvel Champions. This is the, the newest living card game from Fantasy Flight Games. It's 
It's a Marvel-based living card game. And generally speaking, you've got your hero deck made up of... A, so the heroes all have their own deck. And then there are aspects. Protection, justice, aggression. They basically do what they say on the tin. So you have your hero and your aspect. You mash them together. The aspect in and of itself, there is quite a bit of deck building. So as the new sets come out, there are more aggression cards, more justice cards. And you can start really mixing these in. You don't have to deck build. Because all the characters come with a pre-made deck. So if you're not into deck building, brilliant. If you are into deck building, brilliant. It really does have that kind of, you can go either way with that one. And then you've got your villain deck. And the villain deck, you've got your villain and a modular set. So like Green Goblin came out last year. And there are basically four different modular sets. So you can add in the villains or the mechanics that you want. And the villain deck basically plays itself according to certain rules. And it's basically one to four players where you each pick a different hero and off you go. And it's, it feels like a Marvel card game. So my first couple games, I love Iron Man as a character. My first couple games of Iron Man, I got stomped. Could not win a game with Iron Man. And then I realized that with Iron Man, you have to stay as Tony Stark for a little while. You have to build up your armor, and then you can become Iron Man and actually start trying to take down the villain. And if you actually start trying to go with Iron Man before you've attached enough armor, you will get stomped because that's not what Iron Man does. And the designers have done a phenomenal job so far of making the heroes feel like the heroes, which is a very, very difficult thing to do. I mean, the next hero pack, which is... Well, it depends how you look at it. In the US, they're still waiting for Black Widow and Doctor Strange. But in the UK, we've got them somehow. I have no idea how. So we're now <laughs> waiting for Hulk, which has oh, been made. And essentially in the game, there's two things you're trying to do. The villain is building up scheme on a... Um, on a no, they're building up threat on a scheme. There we go. I'm thinking between too many card games here. <laughs> they're building up threat on a scheme. And if the threat gets too high, they win. So you've got a basically thwart them and keep their threat nice and low they win by building up the threat you win by just whittling down their hit points so in every game you've got to try and thwart them and whittle down their hit points and keep both of these in mind at all times but then there's minions that come in and there's side schemes in addition to the main scheme and you've got to try and manage all of that and it's it's really good because it escalates up you know depending on what villain you're playing against but you're constantly having to keep track of four or five different things, which really appeals to me in a card game. I love the kind of card game where you cannot have the telly on in the background. It is sit down. There's loads of things going on. Keep track of all of it at once. That's, that's very much my jam. But Hulk's coming out, and Hulk is the first character we've seen that has a thwart value of zero. You cannot remove threat from the scheme using Hulk. Because it's Hulk. Hulk doesn't do for Hulk just smashes. Now, I play most of my games solo. This is my kind of wife and kids have gone to bed, sit down and play solo Marvel Champions for an hour or two. So it's one of my guilty pleasures. Love it. I don't know if Hulk is even going to be playable solo. But then again, I don't have to play. Obviously, he comes with aggression normally. But I could play Hulk Justice and I could build a Justice deck with lots of thwarting. So Hulk would have some options if I gave him a deck that would give him the options. But then I'd feel a bit guilty because I wouldn't be playing Hulk like Hulk. Yeah, it would be a, you know, maybe an Ang the Ang Lee version or something, I don't know. Oh, 
Oh. Oh, I've been meaning to rewatch that film for ages. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, they're all better. Can I just say the Hulk films are all better than you remember, even oh, even the even the bad ones. <laughs> I love Hulk films. And the other thing, and this is why I would recommend Marvel Champions to anyone. My favorite thing about this, and this is a bit of a theme with me, right? Is I want to play living card games and all other card games, but I if I don't get in at the beginning, I get too far behind and it stresses me out. Marvel Champions is properly take it or leave it. You have a hero deck, and you might have friends playing other hero decks, and you have a villain deck. But you don't need all of them. You can just skip as many expansions as you like, and it doesn't matter. And I love that, because it means that you can, you can take on this game in three years down the line, and you buy the core set, and you're already up to speed. And then if you really want to play as Captain America, you buy the Captain America deck. But if you don't fancy playing as Miss Marvel, just ignore Miss Marvel. Whereas with the story-driven living card games, you can skip the expansions, but then you're missing out on a bit of the story. And you're not getting the whole of the game. Whereas it, it seems like brilliantly designed, so if you want to dip in and out, it will work perfectly in that regard. Yeah, it's really smart. And also, there is, there is a very nice thing of just playing with the characters you want to play as, as well. That, that is, that's like a really nice... Uh... Uh, option for you because I think um, what you said there about skipping an expansion um, in a in a card game means you also yes you miss out on the story as you say but you also miss out on um, all like the learning uh, yes. the, the sort of all that you know living in your head stuff um, you kind of miss all miss all of that and then and then you sort of when you when you come back to it you will feel um, like you're a foreigner you know like you're, you're somewhere strange and uh, it's it's not your home anymore. Whereas if you can if you can just pick up your Miss Marvel or whoever it is you like, um, you already probably know all the tropes. You probably know how to play it already if they're that well themed. It really is, and it's and there's plenty of new mechanics. But like um, like I've been playing Doctor Strange this past week, so I just got that one in the mail. I love Doctor Strange, and he's got this invocation deck, and it's basically a separate deck of five cards which are spells. And instead of attacking with Doctor Strange or thwarting with Doctor Strange, you can play the top card of your invocation deck. And this is completely new mechanic that you have to learn how to play with the invocation deck, etc. But only if you want to play as Doctor Strange. Otherwise, you can completely ignore the invocation deck and you'll never be any poorer for it. But then if you do play with it, you really feel like, well, of course, Doctor Strange has got an invocation deck. Why would he not have this separate deck of powerful spells? He's a Sorcerer Supreme. Of course he's going to do that. And it's just, I mean, I've been a Marvel fanboy my whole life. And it's, I just absolutely adore the fact that playing as Spider-Man and playing as Iron Man and playing as Doctor Strange, not only do they all feel completely different, but it makes perfect sense. Like you couldn't play Spider-Man with an invocation deck or Spider-Man with the armor. Spider-Man doesn't play like that. And it's just, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know. I'm constantly terrified they're going to run out of ideas. Like... How many complete... Because every new hero has a completely new way of playing. And I, I keep getting terrified they're going to run out of ideas. And then they reveal the new hero pack, and I'm like, oh, no, they're good. Yeah. <laughs> I probably need to trust them just slight, slightly more on that one. I mean, I don't think they've run out of... Uh, they've not run out of movies yet, so I think we're probably okay. And I, apparently there was something called a comic book before that as well. So uh... <laughs> yeah, they, They've got something to draw from. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So and, and number one, the, the the one game that's better than Pokemon is that is that what we're calling it? Is that not better than Pokemon? I'm afraid. <laughs> my, my, shall we say my favourite non-Pokemon okay. game? <laughs> I mean, it's Keyforge. 
Keyforge. I, I think I would probably describe Keyforge as the most mechanically sound game that I've played. It's also a nightmare to commentate. And the thing about Keyforge is the minute-to-minute decision-making is more profound in that game, more pronounced than probably any other game I've played. Because, I mean, the, the, the way the decks work, you get a 36-card deck, and it's essentially random, but it's made on an algorithm. So you will be assigned three houses of the seven that are in that expansion, and you will get 12 cards from each of those three houses. And it's largely random, but then there are certain things, certain cards always appear together, cannot appear together, etc. So every turn, you go in and you pick one of your three houses to be your active house. And there's no resources. When you pick your active house, you can play whatever cards you want, you can use whatever cards you've got on the field, or you can just discard whatever cards you want from your hand, as long as they are of the active house. So first of all, you've got to fit, you've got to figure out your active house. And that's the first big decision. You've then got your creatures you play and you've got your action cards you use and your upgrades to fill your creatures. And one of the things I really like about Keyforge is they're not putting on limits. There's no limit to how many creatures you can have out. There's no limit to how many upgrades you can have on a particular creature. You don't have to put the Sanctum upgrade on the Sanctum creature. The limits that other card games put on, Keyforge managed to do well without putting those in. So whereas in Marvel Champions, you can have three allies, but then stop putting out allies. And you have to, otherwise you could build up five allies and the game would be way too easy. But Keyforge, because of the way it's designed, they don't have those limits. But you are constantly punished for making the wrong decision. Another thing I love about the game, at the end of your turn, you draw until you've got six cards in hand. So the draw options you generally get in your deck are quite poor compared to other games. The drawing you'd see in, say, Pokemon is phenomenal compared to the drawing you see in Keyforge. For Pokemon, you draw one card at the start of your game, Keyforge, start of your turn. Keyforge, you draw up to six at the end of your turn. So you can play lots of stuff and you don't necessarily get punished, but there might be a really good card you think you're going to want in one or two turns time. So you can keep it in your hand, but then you're drawing one fewer card at the end of your turn. And then you've got your creatures on the field and they might have actions, but outside of that, they can either fight or they can reap. Reaping gets you amber, six amber forges a key, three keys forged wins you the game. Or you can fight your opponent's creatures. And there's that con- and this is what makes commentating so difficult. You have to watch what they're doing really carefully to figure out what each creature is actually doing. Yeah. And that makes it very difficult. But it means from a moment-to-moment thing, it's do I get greedy and try and get amber so I can forge keys and win? Or do I take down my opponent's creatures, play a bit of a slower game? Or do I go for a half and half? And it's that minute-to-minute decision-making. I know I said that before, but it is just so on point with Keyforge. Mm. And this is, like I said earlier, about people saying, oh, the the best decks always win. Well, well, no. I mean, one dude, and I forget his name, and I apologize for this, he is constantly popping up at the top tables of these Archon tournaments where you can choose your deck. He's constantly popping up on the top tables with the same deck He's also won two Voltors with this one deck. But there's an unofficial online client, and he has played well in excess of a 1,000 games with this deck. Wow. He has played, I believe, somebody did the, somebody ran the numbers, and he's played more games online with this deck than anyone has played with any deck. 
And it means that actually, I mean, don't get me wrong, right? It's a nuts deck. It's a great deck. But also his knowledge of the deck means that he is constantly making these right decisions. And that's why he's so good. You give someone else that deck and they'll probably do fine with it, but they won't play it like he does. I guess he always knows what he's likely to draw. And that's the kind of control that you don't usually you don't usually have. Well, I say that. You don't usually have if you're casual. Absolutely. And there's a lot of awkward things about Keyforge because you're not deck building, you know, you, you buy your deck and then you're stuck with it and it's hard to read the metagame, etc. But I've already mentioned how amazing it is as a sealed game. I mean, sealed tournaments in Keyforge, you're not really making any concessions. In Pokemon, we I talked about mutant evolution where you can evolve any fire into any other fire. And you have to make these concessions because the game isn't built for sealed play. And I've played many a fun sealed tournament in Pokemon. I've been doing it for a decade or more. But with Keyforge, you play a sealed tournament and everyone just has a deck. And it's a proper, fully-fledged functioning deck. And they're going to be of varying quality, as, as is inevitable. But then you're really rewarding people who can get to speed with these decks really, really quickly. The other downside, and it's... It's more of a financial downside than anything else. You never run out. You never stop wanting to buy Keyforge decks. With Pokemon, you can get to a stage where you have a playset of every card in the set. And you can buy more packs, but there's no real point. You've got a complete master set. But with Keyforge, every single deck is different. So there's always that, yeah, but th this deck's not going to be like my other decks. And it means that you're constantly just, you know, the, the popping down to your local game store and, oh, I might as well pick up a Keyforge deck while I'm here. That is strong. Yeah, there's, they're sort of ch chasing, the, uh, chasing the dream there, really, aren't they? Maybe, maybe this one is the perfect deck. And you, you, you never run out. And that's, oh, it's, it's so, I think the problem is, I think the more, if, if I ever just ended up richer, I would just end up buying more and more Keyforge decks. And, and then maybe I'd get one of these Uber decks at one point. That could be fun extremely hard to judge what's a good Keyforge deck. There are there are plenty of people have devised these rating systems where they give each card a value as to how good it is, and and there's plenty of them out there, but none of these rating systems actually tell the story. No, and, they, and apparently they don't work anyway because they're obviously tied to the meta, and is their meta is kind of unreasonable to it was unreasonable to try and pin the meta down in Keyforge because it's kind of the choices you're making aren't there. So saying one card better than another card makes no sense because it only makes sense in the context of this deck. Yes. I think they're a great starting point. I, I think all of these, I mean, all of these rating systems are great to start you off and give you a rough idea of the relative strength of decks. But what is far, far better is actually sitting down and looking at the deck in context and what you can do with it. And then, of course, what's far, far better again is, shockingly enough, playing with the deck <laughs> and logging a bunch of games <laughs> and actually seeing what works. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's very reasonable of, uh, of you to say. Uh, if you, so, um, so is there anything else you want to say about Keyforge before I ask you the next question? No, no, I think I've I think I've gushed over it enough. I mean, it feels weird, you know, pointing out little downsides in the games. It, it feels only fair to, but I I love all of these games. I I used to think I was a Pokemon dude, and for a while I was, but it turned out I didn't just love the Pokemon trading card game because I'm into Pokemon. Turns out I loved Pokemon and trading card games, and it was just this like perfect mix. And and now I've gone over to other trading card games. It's 
There's lots of good ones out there. Just if you were going to say to someone who wanted to get into card games now, they wanted to find their, you know, their game, what, where would you send them? Honestly, I would send them to Keyforge. I think Keyforge is the best gateway game, that or Marvel Champions, because it's all there in the box. It's nice and easy. You don't need much to get going. I think games like Pokemon in the long run can be far more rewarding with the deck building and all of that. And, you know, Pokemon's got an organized play system, which is just phenomenal. And it's, you know, little tournaments leading into big tournaments, leading into world championships. And there's so much to love about it there. But getting from zero to 60 in Pokemon can be quite difficult. Although, to be fair, with lots of online resources, hint, hint, there are, you know, there's things out there that can help you. But I think someone who's not into card games at all, I mean, I went out for pizza with a friend of mine the other day, and I I tell her about Pokemon and all of that, and her eyes kind of glaze over. And I was explaining to her about Keyforge, and she was like, wait, that sounds better. Because the idea of just, wait, I can pick up a deck and play, and I don't have to stress about deck building. And you can also, I mean, Keyforge, the other thing is, Keyforge can be played on the cheap. If you're not trying to win a Vault Tour, you don't need a great Keyforge deck. You can just go and spend 20, 30 quid on two or three decks, and that can keep you going for a long time. But it will teach you what you need to know about card games generally, and then you can start going into things like Pokemon, which, you know, I I can give you a million reasons to play Pokemon over Keyforge, just like I can give you reasons to play Keyforge over Pokemon. But I think as a gateway game, Keyforge is near perfect. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, So where can we find you? You can find me, I, I've started Branch Cut. So the easiest way to just look at what I'm doing is on Twitter, at the Wossy, T-H-E-W-O-S-S-Y. If you go to at Wossy, you find Jonathan Ross. And every so often, somebody really famous follows me on Twitter for like an hour until they realize <laughs> I am, in fact, not Jonathan Ross. Which is hey, sorry, sorry, are you not Jonathan Ross? I'm not Jonathan Ross, I know. Uh, we've, we've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to ask you about I your don't film have the pull. <laughs> um, in terms of YouTube, I've got the two channels. Uh, the, the original one is youtube.com slash PTCG radio, Pokemon trading card game radio. And that that's just, it, it's a bit of other Pokemon stuff, but it's largely Pokemon trading card game. And a lot of people claim to tell you everything you need to know, but I, I think I can make the most legitimate claim to that title. It is my my family worry about the amount of videos I make. <laughs> there, is, there is a lot. It is uh, just for the listeners at home. It is a stunning amount of <laughs> niche, and they're all interesting as well. It's not you're not like churning stuff out for you know YouTube keywords or something. You're 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 there following little rabbit holes and little um, pockets of interesting little stuff about um, about the uh, about Pokemon in particular. Um, that, uh, that they're all fascinating. And the other channel is Wossy Plays, which is just youtube.com slash Wossy Plays, W-O-S-S-Y Plays. And that is my, because the problem was I started making a, a Pokemon channel and then every so often I'd post something else on there and people were like, this isn't Pokemon. And they get like really annoyed with me. <laughs> I uploaded a Mario Kart video one time and I lost like 20 subscribers in half an hour. <laughs> Oh I'm God. like, I'm doing two Pokemon videos a day and I put one non-Pokemon video up and people are like, no! <laughs> so I made I made Wossy Plays and that's my kind of, whatever I feel like. I mean, it, predominantly Transformers, Keyforge and Digimon at the moment. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. 
Thanks for listening. Our theme music is by Body in the Thames, which you can find at bodyinthethames.bandcamp.com. You can find us on tabletopgaming.co.uk and follow us on Twitter at tabletopmag, on Facebook at tabletopgamingmagazine, on Instagram at tabletop underscore gaming underscore magazine, and we've just launched a Twitch channel. You can find us there on twitch.tv forward slash Tabletop Gaming Mag. If you like the show, recommend it to a friend, rate us in the iTunes store, or subscribe to the magazine, which you can do on our website.